I'm Sydney. And I'm Haley. And this week's episode on oyster restoration is is to to dive for. Hello. It's Sydney. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have just gotten back from an entire week at sea. It's pretty cool. Yeah, but unfortunately we had no cell service or Wi-Fi, so our episode did not publish for last week. So we're sorry we had planned to give you guys some content while we were away, but obviously that didn't happen, so it's happening now. We are back to our regularly scheduled programming. (laughs) Here you go. (laughs) Um, Okay, first we have Sydney's Marine News of the Week. Yes. So the article I found today was titled, Deep Sea Coral Reefs Discovered in the Galapagos Marine Reserve. Ooh. I know. Basically, in the Galapagos, um, they have this marine reserve, and it was founded in 1998. And this year, the first ever deep reef was discovered in this marine reserve. And this reef was found at 400 to 600 meters deep, which is very, very deep, like almost 2,000 feet deep. Wow. So it's at the summit of a previously unmapped seamount. Mm. Um, and they say it supports a breathtaking mix of deep marine life. And it's on a ridge of a submerged volcano, basically. That's super cool. It it kind of relates to what we were doing on the research cruise because we had some tech teams doing some deep reef research, but mm-hmm. uh, not that kind of deep. Very no. different. No, no, no. So they weren't able to use divers. They actually used the uh, research submersible Alvin okay. from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Nice. Yeah, so super cool. And it said this is the first time that the submersible Alvin has explored this region within the um, marine reserve. But now they have all these upgrades like 4K video imaging systems and sampling capabilities. So that's why they were able to really explore this area. That's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And they also said that... Let me see... Oh, these reefs are very old and essentially pristine, Mm. unlike many of the reefs found throughout the world. So it kind of gives us, as scientists, a reference point to understand the importance of these reefs and their ecosystem function. That's super cool. Yeah, I think two things that are super interesting to me about that is, one, obviously these organisms down there are, like, A, photosynthetic. They're not, they don't photosynthesize like most corals do, um, or most shallow water corals, anyway. Uh, so that's interesting to me. And the reason that I know or assume that is that at that depth in the ocean, you're not getting any light. Oh, so. no. Yeah, that's past the mesophotic yeah. layer. So, and these are all words we will um, have some guest speakers hopefully speak on soon. But mesophotic, meaning middle light reef, mm-hmm. um, is usually between like 40 and 90 meters, I believe, yeah. is kind of the general... Um, so yeah, 400 meters <laughs> to 600, well below that. Yeah. So super interesting. Um, and then the other thing that I think about is just like these areas that are hard for people to get to are a really good reference for like what 
something maybe should look like or without human wants. impact exactly yeah. um I use that word should very loosely yeah. because it implies morality where there maybe isn't, you know, this it's all just one big shifting system. But Yeah. I'm going to try yeah. and find pictures or videos from this. I think that'd be interesting to post and show everyone. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, without further ado, we have an awesome interview for you guys from our Benthic Ecology meeting. We are still in the midst of all of those really cool um, interviews and sharing them with you guys. So we're really stoked for you to hear from this week's guest, Krista Russell, who's going to introduce herself now. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'm Krista Russell. Um, I am a second year PhD student at the Dauphin Island Sea Lab through the University of South Alabama. So I use she, her pronouns. Great. Um, I am a self-titled oyster girl. Um, I love it. <laughs> so I work in or- oyster reef ecosystems. That's awesome. So cool. And where is the lab that you're working at based? Uh, so Dauphin Island is in Alabama. Um, it's okay. just south of Mobile. Very cool. Super cool. Um, and are you from Alabama or from another state? I am not. Uh, so I was born in Springfield, Illinois, which is flat and in the middle of nothing with no water. <laughs> cool. Yep. Um, and I'm a marine scientist. Um, so I moved to New Orleans for my undergrad and then ended up getting married and living there for almost like a little over a decade before wow. moving to Alabama for my PhD. So Wow, that's a, so cool. I've adopted the Gulf South. Nice. <laughs> I like it. That kind of leads into our first question, which is how did you get into the ocean? How did you, like, what drew you to the water if you lived in the middle of Illinois? Yeah, from a cornfield to an ocean. How did yeah. you get here? Um, so I grew up watching Jacques Cousteau documentaries with my dad. I, like, was deeply into My Little Pony and Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> the perfect combo. Those two things, for some reason, as a small child. Um, so I grew up watching those sorts of things, and I think it's because it was so different, and I didn't have access to it, but all of the animals that live in the ocean was almost like they were from space, right? Uh-huh. They're, yeah. they're really different and charismatic, and even the tiny things, like I was obsessed with octopus as a little kid, too, because mm. I just didn't... I couldn't wrap my head around how something like that could exist, Yeah, right? It's just they're really weird and cool, and I yeah. loved that. Um, so I I kind of already knew I wanted to do that, um, and my parents were both divers, um, and Perfect. they got me dive certified when I was 16, and that kind of just, like, clinched it. It was over. That's um, <laughs> there was no hope for me yeah. from that point on. Oh, that's awesome. I love that so much. Um, so do your parents just recreationally dive or do it for work? Or? Yeah, no, they're recreational divers. So actually, I, I only have my recreational diving certification. Oh. So I'm a patty open water. Um, I'm in the process of trying to do the AAUS stuff to do it nice. for research. That's awesome. But I'm a little rusty. <laughs> um, New Orleans doesn't have a lot of diving opportunities. Yeah. Um, and most of the work I do now is in, you know, 10 foot deep mud. So, yeah. like, we have to dive for some of the things we do, but it's not, like, fun, pretty diving. It's, yeah. like, why did I bother getting my tank out for this diving? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, it's it's very different. Blind diving is a whole new experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, not the same. not envy you. As, <laughs> as someone who's spoiled enough to, like, teach and study on beautiful, clear water coral reefs, like, I don't, I don't envy that. I was trained yeah. in Texas, so, like... All of my training is in lakes with low vis and whatever, and I taught, I think, one class in a lake, and I said, okay, I'm done. I will be moving to Florida, where I can see my students. Yeah, I feel that, too. I got certified in Canada, so, like, Stone Quarry, and then the Niagara River, and it's like, okay, like, you're... (laughs) 
your instructor is like holding you while you do your skills because you can't see anything. But it makes you a great diver, and then yeah. you're prepared for like a bunch of other situations you yeah. can find yourself in. If you can figure out how to dive without seeing anything, you can pretty much figure out how to fix any problem that you can see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned that you're a PhD student. Uh, so what is what does your current position entail, and what does your job look like? Um, so I like to say that I'm paid to play in the mud. Um, <laughs> so I'm in my second year, so I'm still in that like honeymoon phase. Yeah. Of, I love all of it. Um, and my background's a little different than a traditional PhD student. So I spent almost six years working for a nonprofit coastal restoration group in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had like a salaried position and like was working with a restoration network, building living shorelines with oysters. Um, and got to the point, especially right after COVID, where I was just really missing the science parts of it. I, and I got to do a lot of that. I was very lucky that I had some really like super cool women who were my bosses that let me do the sorts of things I wanted to do Mm -hmm. um, and let me be curious at my job. Um, But it was this time for me to go back and do more sciencey stuff. Um, So right now I'm working with phenotypic plasticity and predator-prey interactions on oyster reefs. That is so Um, cool. Okay, so just a quick aside because I know that is a big word and a pretty big concept. Um, Phenotypic plasticity is basically the ability for an organism to have different characteristics based on its environment. So we all know that we all have genes that make up our genetic code. It's it's the rule book for how we look, how our bodies are built. And this is true for all living organisms. And as a result of that genome, any characteristics that we have that are visible are known as a phenotype. So if your genetic code encodes for you having blue eyes, that phenotype is the blue eye presentation. Phenotypic plasticity basically means that there is some flexibility in the expression of those genes. So for example, an animal in the colder weather might grow thicker fur, and its genes encode for that, and the temperature outside triggers the body to start using that thicker fur genetic code. Whereas in the summer, when the temperature warms up a little bit, the phenotype, or the characteristic that you see, is the fur becomes thinner, and this is different based on the environmental conditions around it. So phenotypic plasticity is the ability for an organism to express certain genes differently based on its environmental conditions. And next you'll hear Krista explain another example of phenotypic plasticity. A little more fun. So, we, the short version is if you let crabs pee on oysters, they get really scared, and they grow thicker shells, oh. and we can use those thicker shelled oysters to build better, stronger oyster reefs for restoration. This is perfect. You just answered. We always are like, explain it to me like I'm five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scientists have a really good um, habit of making their science sound as sciencey as possible, and we love... We love the breakdown, you know, like, give it to us flat. So that was great. I love awesome. it. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I try to make it easier. Than, yeah. Plus, everyone just loves the fact that the crabs be up their face. So, like, yeah. I can incorporate that in some way. Yeah, It's right. just always fun. Yeah. <laughs> when you work with gross organisms, you just have to lean into the part where they're kind of gross. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We do that with corals, with coral mucus. Oh, Nastiest gosh. substance. Ooh. I really love fragmenting corals and, like... <laughs> Anyone who comes within a huge vicinity will walk around the corner and be like, what's that smell? And you're like, sorry, it's the corals. <laughs> we have a drying oven and we have to get wet weight, dry weight of yeah. moisture mm-hmm. tissue. And for the first day, it doesn't really smell bad. And the second day, it smells terrible. 
And the third day, it kind of smells like food and smells terrible because it's oyster. Yeah. And it's just upsetting. Oh <laughs> like, we have people come down the hallway and we're like, they're like, are you drying things again? And we're like, yes. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> we're the ecology lab on our floor and everyone knows. Oh, okay. oh good. <laughs> I saw this amazing thing, basically referring to scientists as cryptids. Yes. Where yeah. like, you know, we just like walk out of a lake holding a clipboard, yeah. just <laughs> fully upright. I'm like, yeah, that's, yep. Mm -hmm, yeah. That's, we that's are, it. We are the lake monster. <laughs> I am that. I'm Swamp Thing. Yes. You found me. Do you want to talk more about your research a little bit? Sure. Just like a little bit, because it's a little, yeah. like it's a little more than just that. Yeah, um, sure. Go for it. So we're using these predator cues, crab pee, to scare mm -hmm. oysters into building stronger shells. And we're finding that that seems to improve their survival well enough that we get better results for our restoration projects using those. But there's a trade-off. Right? Oh. There's always a trade-off for putting a bunch of energy into building a stronger shell. Yeah. Um, and they may not be able to take stress the same way that a normal oh. oyster would be. Okay. Um, so the other part of this relationship is, okay, you're better protected against your predators, but what happens when it starts to warm up? When you get exposed to a whole lot of low oxygen stress if ocean acidification continues in the way that it's supposed to. Mm. Um, so we're looking at whether that relationship is going to change with these abiotic stress changes and also how these predators are changing with that too. Um, that whole relationship may completely change if these stressors change. That's really That's interesting. interesting. Especially thinking about like the crabs are going to be susceptible potentially to ocean acidification as well as the oysters. Like yeah. both of those are organisms that depend on like calcifying structures for protection, right? And yeah. so... Um, yeah, thinking about the way that ocean acidification could, I mean, even thinking about building a stronger, denser shell, is that potentially a way to counteract or prepare the oyster for more acidic conditions? It know. could. Um, I mean, the other thing is the ocean acidification could also change how predators are finding their prey and how prey are receiving these predator cues. Mm. Um, so blue crabs are a major predator on oyster reefs, yes, mm -hmm. but I also work with this snail. It's called an oyster drill. Mm -hmm. And they don't look like much, but they are like the ultimate destroyers of oysters. Okay. Um, so they have a scraping tongue where they can actually drill a hole straight through the shell if they need to. Um, if they don't have to do that, they'll just pop one open like a can of Pringles. Um, like, they're really incredibly capable for something that barely can see and doesn't have hands. Yeah. Um, wow. But they can get into places where blue crabs can't. Um, mm. And so all, there's all these questions around how are they even finding their oyster prey? And mm -hmm. is ocean acidification likely to change their ability to forage for their food as well? Um, hmm. So lots of super fun, I love puzzles. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all these super fun, complex questions. Well, and that's another calcifying organism. So like yeah. me as someone who, I mean, I don't know, with my background in kind of toxicological work, my question is like, okay, larval development, early like juvenile development, who's likely to be weeded out from ocean acidification first? Mm -hmm. Like are the snails even going to be able to like successfully grow into adult size and, and have healthy adult lives if they yeah. are, you know, are they going to be weaker in ocean acidification scenarios or would the oysters be or like everyone's competing against the same thing. So like, that's, yeah, I, I, my mind goes straight to like development and growth questions mm -hmm. too. So yeah. And intertidal oysters. So oysters are incredibly capable organisms. They mm -hmm. live in dynamic systems. And when they live in the intertidal, they're really well adapted to handling stress. Yeah. Um, and oyster drills, these snails, cannot be desiccated for a really prolonged period of time. Okay. So they retreat with the tide and the oysters don't have to. So up to this point, oysters have had this refuge oh. where they're safe for at least part of the tidal cycle. Oh, 
Wow. But if stresses get too hard, who knows? Yeah. Or sea level rise. Right, or right. sea level yeah. rise. <laughs> um, the, sometimes oysters can keep up with sea level rise, which okay. is cool. They grow on top of each other in a way mm-hmm. that is actually, like, one of the benefits of using them for living shorelines is that they sort of self-heal. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they adapt to the conditions around them to a point. Um, so instead of building a concrete wall and then having to rebuild it three years later, your oysters do it on their own. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. I was just about to ask, what's what's the benefit of a living shoreline as opposed to a coastal hardening with concrete or with barriers or whatever man-made systems? No. Well, so one of those is the adaptability component, right? Um, now with that comes this understanding and acceptance that it does change Mm. and humans aren't good at that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, People don't like it when their shoreline moves around a little bit. um, Mm -hmm. And that is part of living shorelines is that they are dynamic, Mm -hmm. Um, but they provide all of these ecosystem services. So they provide habitat for lots of really important organisms. I've lived in the Gulf South long enough to know that like blue crabs are important. Mm -hmm. Fishing is important. Oysters are important. I want to keep eating those things. And they're really major fisheries for the Gulf South. Um, Oysters in general are incredibly important to the economy of the Gulf South. Um, So that, that ecosystem like facilitation is really, really important in living shoreline work. And then you have this component of they can sort of self heal. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're learning a lot about them. They're not one size fits all and they don't always work. Um, I also think inherently they're just more beautiful places. Mm -hmm. Um, I love going down in and along like the bayous in Louisiana or Mm -hmm. in Alabama and folks who live on the water instead of having a bulkhead. They have a salt marsh and a dock that goes out over the salt marsh. Mm -hmm. It's this incredibly beautiful place and there's tons of wildlife. And like I would want to spend my time out there and not sitting on a bulkhead wall personally. They also hold up better to things like storms. Mm -hmm. Um, So they seem to do a much better job of protecting your shorelines than hardened structures do. So in the long term, they can be more cost effective. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Thinking about it, like from a coral perspective, that's where my mind initially went. Like we have certain genotypes of corals that are more thermally tolerant. And I know you mentioned that some of these oysters might not hold up well with climate change conditions, but you're able to harden their shells. Do you also have, like, oyster genotypes that are more thermally tolerant? Oh, that's one heck of a question. (laughs) Um, So the short answer is yes. Okay. Oysters are very plastic. Um, So there are regionally adapted populations that have shown that they have different abilities to cope with things like thermal stress. Um, but also things like salinity stress. So in South Louisiana, um, if you live east of the Mississippi and they open the Bonacary Spillway, uh, which is a flood control structure, um, it lets the river flow. And so you'll go from a relatively saline estuarine environment to a very fresh estuarine environment very quickly, and it can stay that way for prolonged periods of time. Um, And so those oysters seem to be better adapted at dealing with that low salinity stress than in places like Alabama. Um, It just depends on how much runoff you get. There might also be some regional adaptation to certain disease resistances, but again, that becomes very complicated when you start talking about these other stressors on top of it. Oh, yeah. So I know that's not like a super helpful answer. The short answer is like, yes, sort of. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But there has been some work that has demonstrated that it's not exclusively genotype. It's some epigenetic stuff. Yeah. So there's only so far they can get pushed. Um, and how how far they can push depends on what regional population you're talking about. Okay. Um, and once again, we are talking about that phenotypic plasticity here. 
So how far they can be pushed within their genotype to have differentially expressed phenotypes. And if you're thinking about things like restoration, usually we're sourcing our oysters from hatcheries. Um, those hatcheries have um, strains, essentially, um, yeah. that they have these bred types, um, and they try to breed them for being really resistant. Um, but you can only get access to certain ones in certain places, and there's never enough larvae to go around. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is a bit of a challenge in that respect, unless you want to start breeding your own oysters. <laughs> so question to kind of, I don't know, piggyback off of that with corals. A lot of time I know, um, there's some early work being done looking at whether you can expose them to stress as larvae or as young organisms in a way that will bring out that phenotypic plasticity that will allow them to become more adapted within their genotype. You know, this isn't um, you're not expanding the ability of a certain genotype, whatever their genes are, their genes are, but mm -hmm. you are um, pushing them to the end of their phenot phenotypic plasticity and getting them more and more comfortable acclimated to these extreme conditions. And there's been some success in taking those and putting them out into the ocean. Um, and we're trying to look and see like, do they last longer under bleaching events? Do they, um, are they more resilient to different stressors? Do you think anything like that could be done with the oysters where they're exposed to high stress in larval rearing or in nurseries that um, would allow them to be better? I am delighted you brought that up. Um, so induction as a process is something that only really seems oysters can do it, but they seem way more open to those cues at a very, very young stage. Mm -hmm. So in the first about month after settling out from being a planktonic larvae is mm -hmm. when they're sensitive to that cue and they seem to lose it over time. Okay. It's probably a simple case of size refuge versus the amount of energy they're having to put into building yeah. a shell. Um, if you can get big enough, fast enough, a lot less can eat you. Yeah. Um, so they're really just focusing on that, we think, in that young life stage when everything eats them. Yes. Um, and then once they get big enough, they back off. Um, now, I know folks have done some work with, say, um, ocean acidification type situations with planktonic larvae. Mm -hmm. um, and the answers to that are really interesting. So there's some work out there that says with um, lower pH, but not extreme, extreme low pH, that it can actually force oysters to settle out more readily than they normally would, okay. which doesn't inherently seem like a bad thing. But in the long term, it may be. Yeah. Um, it's important that they pick a good place to settle, much mm -hmm. like corals, because mm -hmm. <laughs> um, if you choose wrong, you die. Yes. Um, <laughs> we just talked about that yesterday. Uh, yeah, if you make a bad choice, you don't live through it. Yeah. Um, and so they're they're attracted to the calcium carbonate signature of adult oyster shell. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea being that if if an adult oyster lived long enough to settle there, then this is probably a pretty good spot for an oyster to yeah. be. Mm -hmm. um, but Yes, you can expose their larvae to things, and they do seem, at least in some cases, to be more capable of dealing with stress if you stress them younger. Mm -hmm. um, but they don't seem to hold on to all of them for really long periods of time. It just okay. depends. Okay. Um, the problem with being so capable and dynamic is, is that, that they're capable you, of yes, 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 yes. So the way one of my one of my wonderful lab mates puts it is that. You don't buy the security system until the white van is circling your neighborhood. Yeah. Um, so if it's scary, they do something about it. But when it stops being scary, they focus on other things. Yeah. 
taken in how similar oysters and corals are. So it's funny you bring that. So when I was little, little, I was like, I'm going to be a coral ecologist and that's yeah. what I'm going to, and I still love them because yeah. community interactions are my jam. The more complicated, the better. Yeah. And diving, when I started diving, I was diving in the Caribbean and I can just like lay looking at the same like square meter for an yeah. hour oh, yeah. and just, and I, I'm an invert person. Mm-hmm. And so like, oh, uh, you're speaking to your uh, people here. Um, <laughs> I love this. So. One of the reasons I like oysters as much as I do is because I'm drawn to those structure-building, reef-building animals mm-hmm. that create a community. Yeah. Um, so same kinds of ideas, just in much muddier water. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So we've been talking a lot about different like life stages of oysters. Can you give us like a quick and dirty rundown of what an oyster life cycle looks like? Because, I don't know, I think as invertebrates, not as many people know what they what their babies look like and what it like how do they grow up and where do they you know so Mm -hmm. can you give us like a quick and dirty yeah absolutely um so oysters are what's called a broadcast spawner um so they make eggs and sperm and release them into the water column um they're fertilized in the water column as very 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 small zygotes you would need uh some powerful (laughs) um, microscopes to see them they live as planktonic larvae, so in the water column, free-floating as very, very small organisms for about two weeks. Okay. Um, they go through a few life cycle uh, stages in there. When they're ready to settle, they grow a foot, a tiny little foot. Um, they're actually called a pedivelager, petty meaning foot, mm-hmm. um, and they start looking for a place to settle. Um, they settle out. Uh, they have a terrible name when they settle. They're called spat, Okay. Um, which is just a terrible name but they're really cute so like when they settle out they're oh you can see them with your naked eye but not easily they're like little specks yeah Yeah. um but they grow really fast um and when they're mm, about two inches long is when they're considered an adult um it's important to know that once they settle they can never move again Mm -hmm. um and they do build their own shell um So they, they like friends. They are reef building organisms. Like you're not going to find them living by themselves or wandering about like a clam. Mm -hmm. They don't do that. Um, they live in apartment housing. Um, said high rise. Yes. (laughs) Stack me on top, baby. (laughs) That's great. That's awesome. So you mentioned earlier that a lot of people rely on these oyster reefs. Um, what is the importance of different communities and fisher people in science? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, so I think it's important as scientists to remember that we're people <laughs> um, and that we work with animals and ecosystems that directly affect people and that are affected by people. Um, and it's it's really important that we remember to frame those sorts of thoughts and questions and all of the things we do within that context. Um, so oysters are incredibly important to people along the Gulf Coast and elsewhere um, because they are a commercial fishery, they are a resource. But they also have this cultural heritage associated with them. Um, People are very attached to them and they're part of an identity of place, particularly in Louisiana. Um, So it's important that when we're especially doing things like restoration, we're taking into account the needs and desires of the communities that grew up with those ecosystems while we're doing that sort of restoration. Um, So when I was working in Louisiana, uh, we worked with the Pointe Shen Indian tribe. Um, that's how they prefer to be referred to. Um, wonderful people who reached out trying to protect a natural cultural resource. Um, there are what's called a shell mound. Um, they can be burial sites. They can be places of important cultural heritage. 
Um, and they would be considered, say, a archaeological site, except that's not how these folks use them. They're still really important to maintaining their culture and passing it on to new generations. Um, so we've worked with those folks. They reached out and wanted to build a living shoreline to help protect that shell mound with a living structure made of that same shell. And that this is a really, really beautiful project. It was wonderful to be able to provide expertise in a way that was needed and asked for by the community and that we were working for them, right? Yeah. We, we were serving multiple purposes, but we're working for them to make those sorts of changes because they recognize that with climate change, with sea level rise, they needed to protect their resource. Um, same thing with working in a fishery. There's always going to be potentially competing opinions about what you should and shouldn't do with oysters. Should the oyster fishery be open? Should it be closed? Do you do restoration this way or that way? It's just important to remember that people have good reasons for having those ideas and that we, we need to keep getting better at listening to those needs um, or it just won't work long term. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's so important because those are the communities that grew up with that resource. They know the value of it and they want to preserve it. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be the biggest advocates for that resource. Yeah. And for long-term sustainability of projects, having communities and building a trust network and having those folks on your side, that's what makes things last. Yeah. That's and so awesome. I think that I, early in my scientific career, was really very solely focused on the science of the matter. Mm -hmm. Um, as I mean, as you should be, right? When you're when you're learning how to do science, it's important to be very focused on the science. Um, and about halfway through my college career, I went through like a science communication portion of a class. It was like this really cool cohort-based class for the first semester. It was like a two-semester-long thing. First semester, we did a whole bunch of research. It was like original novel research, and then the whole second semester was based around communicating that research. And so. We would go to like different community events. We went to our first conference and I presented my findings. We got a publication ready for submission, all that stuff. Um, and I think in that semester, it really hit me how important it was to communicate my science because I realized that if, if I only communicate my science in a way that other scientists who make up less than 1% probably of the entire popular, right? Like yeah. maybe marine scientists specifically, there's not that many of us in the grand scheme of things. So if, if I communicated effectively so that 100% of all the marine scientists in the world are convinced that I'm right and want to do something about it, that is still not nearly enough people to get anything done. So I realized that if I'm not communicating my work in a way that's applicable and understandable and reachable by the public, then my work isn't going to go anywhere. It's not going to mean anything and it's not going to do anything. So in order to make impact with and like protect the things that I think are so important and worth protecting, I'm going to have to be able to communicate that to people who aren't just in my field, who aren't just scientists. And I'm going to have to explain why it matters and why it's important and then hear them too. Because if, if I'm speaking at a wall, there's no way that anything's going to get done. It's got to be a conversation. So I think integrating community needs and, and human needs into like real management solutions based on science and based on like human needs is just super, super important. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. So with all of that science communication and also super cool science work that you do, I know you don't dive a whole lot for this job, but you have in the past. What is your favorite aspect of all of this? What's like your bread and butter of this career? Oh, um, I get to be curious as a job. And that is something that I feel very, very privileged to be able to do. Um, 
my like my career is all about asking questions mm -hmm. and learning from environments, from other people, from snails, um, <laughs> things that like I never thought to ask in the first place. And I love that I get to do those sorts of things. Um, the field work is very much my bread and butter. I love to go play in the mud. I like to like to just go see what things are doing. Mm -hmm. Like, what are they even doing out there? Yeah, <laughs> that stuff's so much fun. Um, and learning learning enough to use those tools to be helpful long term, um, to actually be able to apply that to something where we can protect ecosystems and protect lifeways for people long term is really really cool. I I love that. That's a great answer. <laughs> I, I really, I love the field work. If yeah. I could be in the field almost every day, I would. Right. Okay, let me go diving. Let me figure out what does a coral do every day. Let me just be a coral. Yeah. <laughs> what do you see? Yes. Yeah, it's bad enough that I went to come to the conference. I'm like, do I own the clothes? Yeah. I own leggings and fishing shirts. I was going to say fishing shirts. <laughs> and a series of wetsuits. Yep. And none of those are appropriate for this. Some bucket hats. <laughs> oh, a wide variety of hats of different room yeah. sizes. Got the one that looks like I'm on safari, like it's in the ad, but it's perfect. <laughs> I love it. Field clothes for the win. I uh, I was just standing in the bathroom this morning and I looked at myself and I was like, oh, she's giving professional. I know, like, it's like girl, you're cute. I was going through my closet and I was like, I do have cute clothes. <laughs> I do own conference clothes. <laughs> this, this is here. So we talked a little bit about diving. Um, how exactly does it intersect with your work? So diving on oyster reefs is very different in the Gulf South than the diving that I grew up with. Um, I grew up diving on coral reefs in the Caribbean with beautiful blue water and perfect visibility. And I can just go watch fish and watch corals and check out sponges and go peek around coral heads and try to find octopus. And all of those animals live where I work but I can't see them. Um, so I'm diving in water that is almost no visibility. You can't see your hand in front of your face. Uh, most of what I'm working in is less than 15 feet deep. So the tank is really just there as a convenient encumbrance. Yeah. Um, but part of that, it lets you access the system that's really hard to work with. Like I recognize that I work in a system that you because you can't see, you can't use these same types of tools and techniques to look at your study organisms. You have to get kind of inventive. Um, and it also reminds me that one of the reasons I think people need to be exposed to oyster communities and oyster reefs is because you can't see them. They're not charismatic in the same way that so many other animals are. But if you can get them to the surface, if you can communicate that, if you can let someone hold an oyster drill snail, they're actually quite charming little animals. Um, and normally people wouldn't have access to them unless I can find a way to show them these organisms and these places mm -hmm. that I work. Um, so I think the diving is a good way to remind me that I'm lucky. <laughs> yes. So do you mostly do, like, I guess, do you dive to collect samples? And then, yeah, what other kind of tools are you using underwater? So we, we do dive to collect. So oysters can grow subtidally, so they're never exposed, or intertidally, where they're exposed regularly as the tide goes in and out. Um, those subtidal oysters are just deep enough that it's really hard to hold your breath and pick up a whole bunch of rocks at once. Um, turns out rocks are heavy. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so if you need to pull samples from trays that are a meter square, they're 50 to 100 pounds a piece. 
you can't snorkel, well, you can snorkel down and pick them up, but it's not ideal. You get really tired really fast. Yeah. I have never been in such good shape as I was that summer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you can dive it, then you can actually spend time down there collecting samples, getting an idea of um, how our oyster reefs are doing, if we have new babies settling on them, what predators are hanging out, what kinds of new fish or invertebrates have started using that reef as a habitat basically measures to understand whether our reef is actually making a developing community, a developing ecosystem, gotcha. or if we just threw some shawl in the water. Yeah. Because um, again, you can't see it. <laughs> Most The intertidal ones are kind of great because you can see them, and you can watch them change over time. Um, but the subtitle ones are like mysterious and sort of yeah. more fun because of that. Um, but most of the measures we're looking at are related to how long-term survival is working with oysters, um, if they're actually making this ecosystem we hope that they are. Yeah, and like providing that ecosystem function. Mm-hmm. Super cool. Oh my gosh, is it so exciting to like, maybe this is dumb, but are, are you as excited as I think I would be to see like baby oysters growing on things? No, I'm more excited. Okay. <laughs> So, because when we're doing the induction projects, we actually rear the oysters in the hatchery and induce them and then put them out. Uh And so I suddenly have 12 million babies to feed, and I love them. (laughs) Like, I'm very attached to them. And we did not be because not all 12 million of them are going to make it. That's not how oysters work. Um, But they're... When they first settle out, when they're that little pedivelager, they have little um, cilia, so little hairs. So imagine... Imagine a little semicircle mm-hmm. that has a little fuzzy halo, Ooh. and they swim around like kind of crazy, like a bumblebee. Mm-hmm. Like they're not—they're not the most—they're uh, dir- a little directionally challenged. Should we, <laughs> can we say so? Like they're zooming around in little circles, like little lost bumblebees, and it's just like the cutest thing I've ever seen. Oh my god! And then they settle out and start to grow, and I'm so proud of them. And then they start getting stronger shells, and we. Unfortunately, we have to crush them to measure that, but <laughs> I know that they're getting stronger and they're like eating their Wheaties and growing up strong, yeah. and I'm like super proud of them for that too. No, I'm very attached to my babies. It's okay. ridiculous, actually. <laughs> this is how I felt when I did coral spawning for a summer. I was like, I knew which baby this was and which baby this was, and I was always coming in and checking on them constantly. Oh, they're my children. So cute. Yeah. I do name them all Nemo because there's too many, but. Yes. <laughs> I had a a bunch of corals that I used for my master's work that I, they were not baby babies. I just took whole colonies and fragmented them up. And so we called all the little fragments on my babies and we named them all Carl. So, cause they're corals. So mm-hmm. they're all corals named Carl. And that was great. It, I had a thousand corals. <laughs> so good. Okay. Do you think throughout your experiences in diving and in science or even as like working with the Living Shoreline organization, have you ever felt like any of your identities or um, like demographics or anything have caused you to have a different experience within the field than anyone else maybe? Um, Yes, but not necessarily in a bad way. Yeah. Um, So I have been very, very lucky that I have worked with a lot of really wonderful female scientists and women scientists who are very supportive of everyone they work with, Mm -hmm. but they hold up other women in sciences in a way that is really, really helpful. Um, And that's sort of been a consistent thread in my career is that I keep lucking out and getting to work with these super badass women. That's so Um, amazing. How beautiful. I I know, know. but it, it, it's, 
it's wonderful because it reminds me to be that for other people too. Um, I really do think that having, having someone on your side, having that sort of representation creates more of that representation. It Mm -hmm. really, really does. Um, so it's, it's a really good reminder that like, there's a, there's a reason why we do the things that we do and that everyone has something to learn from somebody else. Yes. Um, and people's favorite thing to do is talk about the things they like. Yeah. Um, so ask them, right. Um, but having, having other women do that for me has been really, really wonderful. Um, in the field, particularly in the South, um, and because I did not grow up in the South and I don't sound like I grew up in the South, Mm -hmm. um, I would say that as a woman working in the field, it is very common for men and women that are from the South to try to help me Mm -hmm. because they assume I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, Which to be fair, I'm like carrying a bunch of really heavy, weird looking equipment into a marsh on foot and I look insane. And I get that (laughs) to them. I look insane. Um, And so I think that that desire to like help a little lady out Mm -hmm. while it is frustrating is also a really great way to start a conversation because that person is already open to communicating with you and helping you and talking to you about what it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so I can sneaky science my way into that and then actually start talking to people and learning from them and letting them learn from me. Um, So yes, I do think that being a woman in science has is certainly different than not being a woman in science, at least for me. Um, But there are ways for that to be really, really helpful long-term and have these growth opportunities. That's a really good perspective. I I think that I agree. There have definitely been times in my life that I feel like because I don't come off as super intimidating, people are more open to communicating with me. Um, and it has totally given me an in in a lot of conversations to be like, also, here's coral science. Like, this is why corals yeah. are so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are open to hearing that from me because I don't come off as, um, I don't know, like a bigger, more intimidating presence, I mm-hmm. think, sometimes. Um, I think, like, specifically on dive boats, too, I've definitely had multiple occasions where people, like, just chatting with me. And I'm like, yeah, by the way, I'm, like, out here because I study coral reefs. And then I give them, like, a lowdown. I'm like, this is what's currently threatening our reefs. Here's how you can help. And, but yeah, just a perfect in. This is a kind of unrelated story, but just last week I was actually down in the Keys doing some diving, and I had, like, a very similar experience, except <laughs> I felt like a National Geographic photographer. It was, like, a very strange moment. I got on this dive boat, and um, I'd been out with them the night before, and I'd been asking, like, the crew, I was like, hey, do you guys know where any, like, pillar coral are, which is a really cool species of coral. Um, also basically locally extirpated here in Florida, pretty much um, their extent has been sequestered to certain places in the Caribbean, but even still, like, large reproductive colonies are really rare anymore because of this disease that's come through. Um, And so anyway, I I talked to them, and I was like, hey, do you guys know where any are? And they were like, yeah, yeah, we know, like, let's go in the morning. And I was like, okay. So we get on the boat, and it's like me and my boyfriend and all my friends with, like, their big, huge cameras and whatever. And the boat captain was like, hey, everybody, we're going to go look for these corals. Haley here's a coral scientist, so she's going to tell you more. And I was like, wow, I feel like I just, like, I feel like I'm on an adventure. Like, and we're out here looking for the, the elusive coral. And uh, we ended up finding them, and it was super, super cool. And I got to give everyone on the boat, like, a little spiel. And I was like, yeah, this is this coral. This is why it's important. This is why I'm interested in finding it. This is why it's really not here anymore. Like, Mm -hmm. this is what you can do to help. And ask me if you have any questions. So, like, that little impromptu, (laughs) like, I don't know, community education experience was super fun for me. And all the divers kept coming up and being like, wow, this is so 
awesome. Like, I got on the right boat today. <laughs> Thank you. I'm I so glad that. you brought that up because they're, I think, some of the most wonderful proponents of, like, doing good science and taking care of ecosystems and trying to help are the people who hunt and fish and dive because they're working with and living in those places and yeah. it's so important to them. Like, mm-hmm. some of the biggest help I've ever had has been from oyster people who are out there harvesting oysters, who know where to find things, who can help me fix problems, who have a really, really like intricate understanding of all of these things that I'm trying to learn from a scientific standpoint, but they already have all of this knowledge. Yes. But they're really, really open to sharing most of the time. Um, and again, it just helps build that trust relationship. Yeah. And I know that there are thoughts out there that scientists should, you know, stick to science and the science communication should be, like, kept to communication professionals. And I 100% agree that you can be really good at communication. And as scientists, we often are not trained well to do that. Yes. Yes. And that's not necessarily our fault, but we're not always good at it. Yes. But the best people to talk about something are the people who are passionate about that thing. Mm -hmm. And have you ever met a scientist who isn't so into their study organism or what they do? (laughs) Like, I can wax eloquent about snails or worms for forever yeah which is weird but i can do it and i don't know who else can (laughs) (laughs) yep me and all my friends really love small invertebrates that live on the ocean floor and once a year we all get together and tell each other all the things we know about these random invertebrates that live on the ocean floor and we call it the benthic ecology meeting (laughs) okay i think we're on the fun questions now we'll knock them out and then we'll get on our way you mentioned that you dive in the South, and it's not the best conditions, is there anywhere in the world that's on your dive bucket list? Oh, not just one. <laughs> um, I will I go everywhere. Um, I've never been to Indonesia or Palau, Ugh. and I would absolutely love to dive on those reefs. Um, it's, I mean, it's like this massive hotspot of diversity. It's a completely different ocean basin. It's way older <laughs> than anywhere else I've dove, mm-hmm. um, and I think that would be basically just the most amazing thing of all time. Yeah. Um, I've also never been on the Great Barrier Reef, but I'd love to do that, too. Yeah. So That's cool. awesome. Yeah, those are all on my list. Uh-huh. <laughs> what, um, of the experiences you have had, what is your favorite dive or snorkel or even just, like, field I was on the water, in the water story? Best one? Craziest one? Just give us most the Most memorable. <laughs> do you want a crazy, horrible field story? Or do you want... <laughs> Por que no los dos? Let's, okay. Let's okay. do them all. Okay, I'll do the fun one, the, the fun cute one first. Okay. Um, so when I was learning to dive, I was oh, in my teens, um, and I went on my first night dive. Oh. And I think that experience will stick with me for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so imagine, like, gangly Krista. I weigh <laughs> all of, like, 110 pounds. I don't need weight to get down. Oh, how I miss those days. Right. Um... And I sink like a rock. And they're like, okay, go get him and get in the water. And I'm like, it's like dark though. <laughs> are you? Are you? Are we, are so you know it's time? nighttime, right? <laughs> um, so we roll off the boat, we get down. I'm like trying really hard not to be like really nervous about it because I can't see what's happening. And like, yeah. I, I know there's coral heads everywhere. And I was in Cozumel, which is drift diving. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful not to run into things. Yes. Um, we all have these flashlights and half the batteries weren't working. And Great. so like, it was very, That's like, how it always goes. It was super scary. But after like the first five minutes, you sort of get, it's okay. Everything's fine. You're not just going to like disappear into the, mm-hmm. n- the nothingness. Right. And we finally get settled and we come up on this coral head and the 
there's this open sandy area surrounding it, and the dive that we were on, the dive master said, okay, everyone turn your lights off. Well, he didn't say it. With his hands, he said, everyone turn your lights off. And I'm like, kind of low-key panicking. I'm like, but I just figured out how to make the light go on, and now you want it off? I'm sorry, what? And we turn the lights off, and the ocean's glowing. Mm-hmm. And you you move your fins, and these beautiful strands of these bioluminescent organisms are just flowing around. And when you move your hands or your feet, I mean, they they as they the currents will drift around these coral heads, they glow and fluoresce all these really stunning blues and greens. And it just doesn't look real. Mm-hmm. It looks like you live in magic land. And I was immediately just so overwhelmed by how wonderful and beautiful and weird and bizarre that is and completely forgot to be worried about anything for the rest of the dive i i really wish that everyone could see that Mm -hmm. um because if you weren't in love with the ocean or the earth before that you will be Yeah. yeah i agree completely my first night dive that i saw the bioluminescence i like, I think I legitimately was in tears. Oh, it yeah. It's so beautiful. And it's so impossible to capture on photo or video. So, like, it's really something you can only experience when you experience mm-hmm. it. it. It just truly is so unique. I had the same experience my first ever night dive. We were in the Cayman Islands, and we all turned our lights off and saw all the bioluminescence, and that's still probably my favorite dive ever. And then you remember that the thing making that light is this teeny tiny itty bitty little yeah. organism whose whole life and world is something that you never think about or interact mm-hmm. with, but it's there all the time living its tiny little life. Mm-hmm. And then it, I, I love, I like it when the world reminds me that I don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of wonderful. Yep. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. What's your crazy story? So I think the wildest, weirdest field story I have, um, which was actually a wonderful time and everyone, everyone was okay. Let me start with everything (laughs) was okay and everyone was okay. Great. Um, so we were doing some oyster reef monitoring in Biloxi Marsh, which is out in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Um, so east of the Mississippi river. Um, we're out pretty far. It's like a 45 minute boat ride through a bunch of bayous. Um, that area has a bunch of mud flats before you get in deeper water. So it's, if you go at the wrong time of day, you get stuck. Um, so we'd been out there, it'd been a really long day. We were chasing light to get back. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had many problems that day. Um, mm-hmm. Our equipment, our very expensive equipment didn't feel like cooperating. Um, so it took way longer to do what we were trying to do. So we're try- like, trying to book it back to the, the boat launch because if it gets dark out there, you're, you're in a maze. I mean, you're mm-hmm. in a salt marsh maze. You can't, there's no light that you, it would take forever to get back. Someone might accidentally hit you. You could get stuck. It's, it's not a good situation to be out there at night. Right. Especially if you're not prepared for it. So we're booking it to try to get back. And we're coming around a corner and the boat just stops. And every boat in the history of the world has motor problems. Yep. Yeah. Like my, my unwritten rule is that every boat will break the third time you use it. Yeah. Like that's just what happens. And that's okay. We are prepared for that. So we get back to the engine and make sure like, you know, the engine's peeing and like the motor's mm-hmm. running and we're like, oh, what's going on? And, like, we figure out that we've spun the prop. So, essentially, the prop, the part that makes the boat go, uh, isn't attached to the boat anymore. Um, And you can't reattach it to the boat. So, we're out with a local fishing guide. local fisherman. Wonderful. And he calls up his buddy on his cell phone. And we're just waiting as the sun's going down. (laughs) Alligators are circling. (laughs) And we're just like, oh, no. Um, and it, this guy in a shrimp boat comes tugging oh. up. I mean, this boat is, like, belching black smoke and, like, looks 
a little bit like it's been duct taped back together too many times. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, I'll give you a tow. And I'm like, um, okay. I don't know if his boat's going to make it. So he hooks us up. He starts to tow us back. We get like, I don't know, maybe five minutes closer to the boat launch and the boat stops. (laughs) And he has also thrown a prop. And so they call their third friend, (laughs) who is, like, in the middle of, like, fishing. And so he, like, he's, like, in a shrimp trawler, and he just, like, comes up. So we have, we have, like, a little, like, charter fishing boat towed connected to an oyster (laughs) boat being towed connected to a shrimp trawler. Like, it was the world's saddest, most embarrassing parade of all time <laughs> as we're, like, trying to make these tight corners in yeah. these giant boxy oh, boats. And, like, when we got back and everything was totally fine, but I don't think I've ever been towed by two separate broken yeah. boats. Wow. But we all had a really great beer afterwards, so it was okay. <laughs> Made some new friends. Oh, yes, we did oh, make new friends. Because we couldn't go more than, you know, like... Two miles an hour. Not yeah. even. Like, yeah. I, I'm, like, watching, like, this gator is just, like, f- going <laughs> passing us. Like, I'm sorry, you're in the slow lane, guys. <laughs> so it took forever, but it was it was kind of fun in a very annoying Sick story. way. <laughs> that is amazing. That's probably one of the best field stories I've heard. I that's, know. That's great. <laughs> oh, we were completely covered in mud, so we were sampling on an oyster reef at low tide because it was, like, it's... We could only sample at low tide. It's the only time yeah. it was exposed, but it's in mud. So we were literally coated from here to like, like toes to head, just swamp thing. It was back to the cryptid thing you yes. mentioned earlier. Yes, and like, we were, and like these, these, these very sweet fishermen were like, what are you girls doing out here? And we're like, don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do for the oysters. It's cryptid broken boat parade. It's perfect. (laughs) I'm sure we looked desperately in need of help. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, Yeah, if you had to pick one marine organism, what would you say is your favorite? I think my favorite marine organism, if I had to pick one, is probably the flamboyant cuttlefish. Mm, And it's not because he's flamboyant. (laughs) It's because he's tiny and they have so much sass. Yes. I have never seen so much personality in a thing without a spine in my life. They just, they, they're smart and they're, they have this like, their ability, like they have these social cues, they have behaviors, like they have these really complex little lives and they just, you can't look at them and not love them. Yeah. They're just darling. <laughs> oh my God, I love that so, so much. Cute. I wanna see one in the wild, but yeah. I think, like, I was telling you before that I've developed a reputation for squealing underwater, mm-hmm. um, and I I don't think I would be able to stop squealing. Like, I would just lose my mind, and I'm not sure they'd love that, but I can just, I can picture it now, like, finding a flamboyant cuttlefish and just being like, yeah. <laughs> the first time I saw a squid diving, I yes. definitely made a little squeak sound. Yeah, they're my favorite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so good. Yep. Okay, and... Do you, outside of your plethora of activities within work, have any, like, water-related or maybe not water-related hobbies? Like, what do you what do you like to do? Tell us about who Krista is. So, I do love any activity on the water. So, I love to fish. I love to kayak. I like to paddleboard. I'm not very really good at paddleboarding, but I do really enjoy it. Um, I have no balance. Part of why the water is so <laughs> wonderful is gravity is removed and you can't run into things. Yes. It's great. Um... And then uh, I'm a huge, huge nerd. 
Um, so my husband and I both really love to build Lego sets. I love Legos. That's we so have fun. probably, I'm not going to tell you how many I have, but we have several very large involved Lego sets. Um, it's, I mean, it's basically the same thing. I'm just taking pieces and putting a puzzle together. So yeah. maybe it's just the same thing over and over again, really. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, we really enjoy doing that. You get to build something from these tiny little yeah. pieces and it's super, it's also very zen. I was yeah. going to say like meditative. It is. It's very like... So being a scientist is not nearly as glamorous as it sounds. Um, and it can be super stressful and chaotic. And being a graduate student, as I know you both know, uh, can be very stressful. And so it's nice to have that thing that's very, like, calming and soothing and just mm-hmm. takes a little bit of time to... You can... I've, I think I've worked through a lot of, like, dissertation questions in my head while I've been building Lego yes, sets. I do that with puzzles. I've gotten into puzzles since grad school started and like I need one at all times that I can be working on like at night before I go to bed and just relax the brain. So at the beginning we asked you what brought you to the water? Uh, what would you say keeps you coming back? Uh, that it is never the same twice. I think that's that's one of the things I love most about it and why I keep coming back is that it it changes in all these super fun and interesting ways. Um, also, it needs us. Um, and I think I can genuinely learn enough to be helpful. Um, and I like being able to do that. Um, it's, it's, a, it, it, it's very giving. It's a very giving system. It can be a very harsh system to work in, but it's also a very giving system. There's a lot of reward to working in yeah. marine environments. I love that. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Krista, for coming and interviewing yeah. us. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for taking yeah. time out of your Benthic Ecology meeting. Of course. <laughs> this is what it's all about. Yes. <laughs> Teaching friends about oysters and how cool they are when they're yeah. babies. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Awesome. All righty. Yay. Ma. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to head on over to our website where you can find information on submitting your great stories for our Fish Tales episodes. Those will come out about once a month, and you can find the form to submit your stories online. Our website is under titleteasapparel.com. There's a little header at the top that says to dive for a podcast. And if you hit that link, we also have merch for sale. And you can also find us on Instagram at To Dive For Podcast and on Facebook as well. Don't forget to like and follow and share with your friends. See you guys next week. Bye.